I think I'd forgotten what general practice was like in the winter. Really busy and full of sick people. Now, of course, this is nothing new. General practice has always been really busy and full of sick people in the winter. But what is new is that I seem to have become more aware of illness. It was coming at me yesterday from all directions. Scarlet fever, hand, foot and mouth, influenza, probably COVID, adenovirus, you name it. I breathed it in. Pre-pandemic, I wouldn't have batted an eyelid about this. You just kind of soak it up and think, yeah, I've got a medic's immunity. It's all fine. These days, I'm all about let's get the virus out the room, which is why 20 minutes after my clinic had finished yesterday, I'm sat there with my mask still on, freezing my tits off because the window's wide open and it's blimmin' freezing outside. I think I may have discovered a new medical condition. PPPIPP. Peri-pandemic patient-induced physician paranoia, colloquially known as the don't cough on me syndrome. On the one hand, protecting yourself against getting unwell from circulating pathogens seems like a very sensible idea. On the other hand, the blue tinge to my fingertips would suggest I might have gone off the deep end. In any case, all these efforts were in vain. Today, I am a little bit viral. The irony is, I don't think I picked it up from any of my patients. I, in fact, got this from my five-year-old. On reflection, it probably wasn't worth the frostbite. Still, my mouth's still working. Better get on with the podcast. It's Friday the 2nd of December. This is the Hot Topics Podcast. Welcome to another Hot Topics podcast from MB Medical. My name is Neil Tucker and as usual I'll be walking you through the next 20 minutes or so and we've got a jam-packed podcast today so later on we'll be having the next in our series, our new segment Just One More Thing where we interview primary care experts in a particular field asking what we need to know about in primary care, what's going on in secondary care and what the future may hold for that condition. This week we're joined by Rachel Ainley who trained as a GP but now works as the research lead for Crohn's and Colitis UK. We'll be discussing where we're at with inflammatory bowel disease. In research we're going to have a look at a BMJ paper on how long we should treat deep vein thrombosis and a Lancet paper on how aggressively we should be treating people with heart failure after an acute episode. Now, whenever I record these podcasts, there's always a bunch of things that I thought of that I think, oh, that'd be good to say, or that's really important to say, and I always forget it. And I really should be writing these things down, but then I often forget to write them down. This should be an easy lesson to learn, and I'm pretty sure there's some apps to help me with that. But whilst I remember, we can talk about the news. So what didn't we do this week? Well, we did not cure Alzheimer's, despite what you might have believed if you flicked on the news middle of the week. The makers of Lecanemab, a new monoclonal antibody that's been shown it can clear amyloid beta plaques from the brain, has just published in a phase three trial showing it can modify the course of Alzheimer's. Anything that improves outcomes for people with Alzheimer's is really, really welcome. But does lecanemab live up to the hype? Well, as the lead editorial in The Lancet points out this week, probably not. After 18 months of treatment with an IV infusion every week, you do see improvements in those amyloid plaques. You also see a reduction in cognitive decline. This is measured using the clinical dementia rating sum of boxes scale, an 18-point scale. 
and they found that the absolute difference between placebo and lecanemab was 0.45 points difference. The editorial points out that this may not be clinically meaningful. So in 2019, a study suggested the minimum important difference on this scale would be just under one for someone with mild cognitive impairment and 1.6 for someone with mild Alzheimer's disease. So we are a long way off of that. Plus, one in five people receiving lecanemab suffered from aria so this is amyloid related imaging abnormalities now i've never heard of these before this is obviously quite specific to this type of drugs but using wikipedia thanks wikipedia i have donated this year it appears broadly there's two types of this so aria e which means you've got cerebral edema and aria h which means you've got micro hemorrhages Hmm, all of a sudden things don't sound so promising, but kudos to the PR team for the company. Given the media frenzy this week, they had done a cracking job. Now that was actually just a digression from the things that I was trying to remember not to forget. So I've got three things. One, our new Hot Topics in Diabetes course is out tomorrow. So that's Saturday the 3rd of December. If you're listening to this not on Friday or Saturday morning and maybe you're busy, then that's available on demand from sometime next week. Do check it out. Number two, when I wrote that pension song, if you've not heard it, go back to podcasts, the inspiration from that was one of the co-presenters on the Hot Topics course, Rachel Brattell. And she actually, whilst on the phone to PCSE, said, if I did my job as bad as you, I would be in prison. And I wanted to give her a name check, but because I messed up on the sound quality, then that all got edited out. So now two podcasts later, I've just remembered to do that. And then thirdly, you'll remember also going back to another song a long time ago about the RCGP membership fee. And there I was questioning what value we were getting out of that membership. Well, I think it's only fair to say I have definitely found some value from it. So if this isn't on your radar, um, you should go and check it out. So a few weekends ago, I was staying in London with some friends and we stayed at the accommodation in the RCGP headquarters in Euston Square. They basically have plush hotel rooms that you can stay in um, at the top of the building and they do this really nice continental breakfast. All the staff are super friendly and it costs next to nothing compared with most fancy hotels in London. So if you're an RCGP member, I promise I haven't been paid by them to, to, to say this, but if you're an RCGP member and you need to stay in London, it's definitely worth checking it out. Okay, screaming onto the research. So let's start off with the BMJ. And this paper is titled Rivaroxaban Treatment for Six Weeks versus Three Months in Patients with Symptomatic Isolated Distal Deep Vein Thrombosis, a Randomized Controlled Trial. So this was one of those papers that just makes me question my own reality a little bit because initially I was thinking, okay, so you're saying maybe we can do shorter treatment than three months because treat three months, that's the standard, right? But here they were saying, no, we'd normally do six weeks, but maybe we should be doing three months. I was scratching my head thinking, hang on a second, that's what we're already doing. So are we already doing the best thing? But the key issue here is that they are looking at symptomatic isolated distal deep vein thrombosis. So distal, and of course that's what we never really check for in the UK. We always look for proximal DVTs in the proximal veins and we treat only if we identify something there. That's been the same everywhere I've ever worked in the UK and I'm assuming that that's the same for wherever you are if you're in the country as well. 
it is true that this study was not conducted in the UK. This was conducted in Italy. So you might be thinking, well, Neil, is this really relevant to us? And why on earth are you talking about it? Well, I'll come to that. But first, let's have a look at what they did in the study and what the findings were. So they recruited adults with isolated symptomatic distal DVT. They gave them a standard dose of rivaroxaban, so 20 milligrams daily for six weeks. And then they randomly assigned them to either continue that for a further six weeks or to have placebo. And then they followed them up over 24 months. And what they were looking for was recurrent venous thromboembolism. So that would include progression of an isolated distal DVT recurrent isolated distal DVT, proximal DVT, symptomatic PE or a fatal PE. They of course also looked at rates of bleeding. So 400 patients were recruited split 50-50 between intervention and placebo groups and the short answer was that you were better off on a further six weeks of rivaroxaban. 11% of that group had some recurrence or other VTE compared with 19% in the placebo group. Bleeding rates were the same in both. Now it is fair to say that the difference we're seeing between the groups here is largely driven by recurrence of those distal DVTs rather than extension or PEs. There seems to be very little difference for the more serious complications here. The authors in their discussion around the paper do note that there is still some debate around whether distal DVTs need to have treatment at all. They also note that in almost all developed nations where they check for distal DVTs, if they find one, then treatment is almost always administered and it's hard to justify almost any other course of action. This new data and existing data in this area all points towards there being improvements with longer courses of treatment. So if you actually give no treatment at all, it's reasonable to conclude that there's likely to be an even greater difference in outcomes. So let's bring it back to the UK. I've always found it a massive source of frustration that we don't get any information about what's going on in the distal veins. So we've made a diagnosis, a clinical diagnosis of a DVT. We send them off to the DVT clinic. They have a D-dimer, that's probably going to be positive. They scan them. Uh, they only look at the proximal veins. They don't see a DVT there because it's a distal DVT. Um, they may follow them up in a couple of weeks' time to see if there's been any progression, but they don't give any treatment and essentially they diagnose no DVT. And that diagnosis may be wrong. We don't know because we haven't looked for distal DVTs. Now, I've talked to my radiologist friends about this before and they say, well, it doesn't change outcomes. But the very first paragraph of this paper points out that although isolated distal DVT is generally perceived as a more benign condition than proximal DVT, reported rates of extension to the proximal veins or embolization to the pulmonary arteries can be as high as 22% in untreated patients. I've always been baffled about this. I remain baffled. You would think that that's clinically enough justification to scan a bit lower, not just the proximal veins. And that's before we even get into the fact that even if we're not going to change anything, if management wasn't going to change anything, it would be really helpful if we just had a diagnosis so that we know what we're dealing with in general practice. We're left with all these patients who have got a swollen red lower leg and a scan that says they've got no proximal DVT. Well, I don't know. Could it be cellulitis? Do I need to give them some antibiotics? It would be great to have a bit more information. And we haven't even thought about post-thrombotic syndrome. 
hugely under-recognized, a major cause of lymphedema and ulcers in the future, and whether through the use of leg stockings or perhaps through anticoagulation early on in the treatment course, we could be modifying the prognosis there quite significantly. Okay, I'll step down off my soapbox now and we can think about the next piece of research. And this is in this week's Lancet published today. Safety, tolerability and efficacy of uptitration of guideline directed medical therapies for acute heart failure, a multinational open label randomized trial. So the question they're trying to answer is if you take someone who's in a high risk group for heart failure. So in this case, they've just had an acute episode of heart failure. They're obviously at high risk and you whack them on all the best treatments at the highest doses. Is that helpful or is it going to kill them? Is it better than what we're doing on a day to day basis in general practice? And one of the things that the results of this paper show is that we're not great in general practice at getting people up on those highest doses of medication. Out of about 500 patients in the usual care group, only 2% were on a maximal dose of an ACE or an ARB, only 4% were on a maximal dose of a beta blocker, and just under half were on a maximal dose of a mineral corticoid receptor antagonist. I am sure I'm as guilty as anyone at not pushing for higher doses of these medications, but as the linked editorial points out, the difference in survival compared with a suboptimal regime of an ACE inhibitor and an, a beta blocker is really significant compared with someone who's receiving an angiotensin receptor, neprilysin inhibitor, a beta blocker, mineral corticoid receptor antagonist and an SGLT2 inhibitor. So kind of like four pillars of therapy. The difference in survival is six and a half years on average if you're over 55 with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. That's huge. So does it work if you take this group who's been acutely admitted to hospital for a deterioration of their heart failure and put them on the maximum of all these different medications? And the answer is yes, it does. There's an 8% absolute risk reduction compared with usual care in heart failure readmission or all-cause death over 180 days. Not everyone can tolerate those high doses, so those benefits were seen with 55% of patients making it to the maximum dose of an angiotensin um, system drug, 49% on a maximum dose of a beta blocker, and 84% on the maximum dose of a mineral corticoid receptor antagonist. But what about the adverse events from all these drugs? And it's certainly true that the higher intensity care group had greater rates of adverse events. So 41% reported them compared with 29% in the usual group, although they didn't see any differences in serious or fatal adverse events. What can we learn from this paper? Well, there's good reasons to be positive about using multiple medications to treat heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And perhaps we should be aiming for those higher doses a little bit more. Time now for our Just One More Thing segment. And today I'm lucky to be joined by Dr. Rachel Ainley, who is linked with Crohn's and Colitis UK. You may remember that last month we did an NB clinic, a free clinic uh, in, in the evening on inflammatory bowel disease with a focus on diagnosis, particularly around the role of stool test, faecal calprotectin especially, and also flare management and what we can do in general practice and when we need to hand patients on to the specialists. 
So thank you for joining us today, Rachel. But maybe just introduce yourself for the audience. Thank you. Uh, and thanks for inviting me to be part of the podcast. So just a little bit about myself. So I originally trained as a GP, um, but now work full time for Crohn's and Colitis UK. So I'm their head of research and evidence and I work across research, quality improvement, working with healthcare professionals and uh, improving health services. This is the second time we've done this section. So just one more thing. You're getting used to the concept now if you're listening at home. So this is all about posing questions to experts in their field and asking what we need to know about in general practice, what we need to know about in general practice that secondary care is up to, and also what the future might hold for managing these conditions. So let's do the section. So just one more thing. So the first question then, Rachel. So number one, tell me one thing that we need to know about in general practice regarding inflammatory bowel disease. So in my role at the charity, it's all about thinking about how we can get people living with undiagnosed symptoms to speak to their GP and think, could this be inflammatory bowel disease? So we've just launched a new campaign called Cut the Crap, Check for Crohn's and Colitis, which encourages people to do check their symptoms online using a very quick 30 second symptom checker, really aiming for people to be empowered to go and speak to their GP, talk about the symptoms, because we know that people are still really embarrassed to talk about poo. We know that young people in particular, aged 18 to 24, said that they would wait more than a month to see their doctor when they're passing blood in a recent poll that we did, which seems like a very long time to someone like me who would go, right, that's something's going wrong here. I need to go and speak to someone. But we know that people aren't speaking up. So we want them to know that diarrhea, blood and poo, stomach pain could be signs of Crohn's and colitis and use the symptom checker to really help them speak up and break that poo taboo. And I was one of those people, even though I'm a medic, even though I know all the guidelines, I had some worrying symptoms in my 20s and did not go to the doctor. So for those of you who came on the webinar, of course, you'll know a little bit about this already, but many of the listeners of the podcast might not. So I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis about 10 years ago. I actually had symptoms for 10 years before I got the diagnosis little bit of PR bleeding. After the first few years, I rationalised it wasn't cancer and generally tried to dismiss it. Eventually, it kind of ramped up into something that could not be ignored and I had to go and get myself sorted out. I think if I'd have known that there was a simple stool test that we could do that would be very helpful for the diagnosis, that would have made me much more inclined to go and see my GP much earlier. And one of the things that we talked a lot about on the webinar was the increasing role for faecal calprotectin in primary care. Yes, and that's a key part of the of the campaign. What we're what we're doing alongside the symptom checker is producing a range of resources for community healthcare professionals, including GPs, pharmacists, dietitians, nurses, to really think: Could this be IBD? Are, are we confident that it's not IBD before we diagnose irritable bowel syndrome? And think do I need to do a faecal calprotectin? And there's lots of resources out there um, from our website. Um, you can be linked through to the IBD toolkit on the Royal College of GPs website. But it's, yeah, th think IBD. Are we confident that it's not? I mean, it's worth pointing out that in the early stages of inflammatory bowel disease, people might not have what we consider classic symptoms. So I suspect that most of us think 
if you've got frequent bloody stools, bloody diarrhea in a younger person, that may well be inflammatory bowel disease. But of course, lots of people will get more low-level symptoms, non-specific symptoms, low-level abdo symptoms uh, before we get to that kind of stage. That's the that's the kind of time when you've got the opportunity to make that earlier diagnosis, isn't it? And with greater access to these stool tests, then that becomes a realistic possibility rather than having to send everyone for a, for a colonoscopy and sort of overwhelming services. Yes, um, we know that it's it's a really difficult time out there um, and we are really keen to support GPs and other community healthcare professionals to, to make that diagnosis. But we do know that the earlier we get people diagnosed, the earlier we can get them on treatment um, and get their life back because we know that the impact of, the, of living with undiagnosed symptoms, as you know yourself, can have huge impacts on people's lives across education, social life, employment. There's so many different ways. I probably won't share this anecdote on the on the actual um, on the actual podcast. Maybe I will. Who knows? Um, but it really started affecting me. The point where I realised I really had to go and get myself sorted out was I went on a ski trip. Hashtag first world problems. And uh, we were out on the slopes and I couldn't fart for a whole day because if I did, there would be blood in it and everything would be a, a right mess down there. So, yeah, you're right. Impact on people's lives. Right, that's enough about me. Number two then, Rachel. Question number two. Tell me uh, one thing that we need to know about that's going on in secondary care regarding inflammatory bowel disease. So there's lots of really exciting developments going on with treatment for Crohn's and colitis. We've had biologics for a good number of years now, but there's lots of newer developments in terms of oral therapies, people being able to use subcut therapies at home. So it's no longer uh, the trip to the hospital for your infusion of, uh, of infliximab. So I think that's, that's really exciting. There's lots of medicines on the horizon and we've lots of information on the website around those new medicines because I think it's worth GPs being aware that these are coming. I know that you'll be in close contact with the IBD teams and IBD nurses, but we are going to see people who are managed much more virtually at home on their oral therapies and subcut. Do you think it's going to be like most other medications then? At the, at the moment, biological therapies, I don't think you can really call them niche these days, but they're still very much the remit of secondary care. Do you think over time we're going to start seeing their use more and more in primary care could we be delivering them could our nurses be delivering those injections i'm not sure is the honest answer to that one and i'd probably throw that back over to you do you think as a practicing gp at the moment that would be something you were confident in taking over if the processes allowed that i suspect that most of us feel like we might not have the extra capacity to be able to deal with these things at the moment on the other hand i'm very confident that gps in general practice could manage these types of medication could manage these types of problems the government can magic up six thousand more gps you never know what might happen okay so question number three then tell me one thing that is pushing the boundaries of managing inflammatory bowel disease and this is really exciting. So we're beginning to see uh, information coming out of research studies around personalised medicine. Now, we all know at the moment it's very much try and see approach to, to biologics. It's really difficult to know from the start what's going to work for the individual. So the goal of personalised medicine is really to find what works for people from the outset. So, for example, in one study that we're funding, um, research had been looking at 
the patterns of molecules in the inflammation in the bowel and looking at how those vary from person to person. They're looking at biopsies during routine endoscopies. They're going to link these with the molecular patterns and then really look to see if they can use that information to tailor treatments for individuals. And there's a number of research studies going on at the moment. And that's really the holy grail. Who needs what medication, how it's going to work for the individual with the complex interplay of genetics, microbiome, diet, environmental factors for each individual. That would be very impressive. That would make a huge difference to patients. You can imagine that, I mean, we have some patients who will go through two, three, four different biological therapies and hopefully find one that works for them in the end. But that's months and months of a medication that either is ineffective or causing lots of side effects. Meanwhile, their symptoms are continuing. They're not well controlled. They may be developing long-term complications as a result of that. And if you can just cut out all of that nonsense, get straight down to what really works, that would be that would be huge. So how, how far do you think we're off of that then? That's a great question. It's one um, that we asked the researchers that are involved with those studies. We are making progress, but, but yeah, it's a sort of five to 10 year horizon in terms of improvements. I guess in terms of the impact on people, I mean, we hear from people whose diagnosis took two years, then they had a further kind of five years trialing different medications to find the right one. And if we could if we could shift that, not only would it reduce the distress for people, it would also reduce the pressure on health services. So saving years of debilitating symptoms, physical and mental. So there's a lot of interest in this area. And, and yeah, wouldn't it be great if from the outset we could predict who was going to have that really complex course of disease and who actually was going to have a fairly uh, straightforward course of disease and not not require the the strong biologics. Well, I think you've definitely hit the brief of future medicine there, Rachel. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. I will put some links to the MB clinic that we did. Remember, it's free and on demand. Watch it when you like. I'll put some links about Crohn's Colitis UK in the description as well, plus some of the resources that Rachel highlighted, like that RCGP toolkit. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you very much. Okay, everyone, thanks for joining us once again on the Hot Topics podcast. Been great to have you along for the ride today. Remember, you can always get in touch. Email hottopics at mbmedical.com. Find us on at GP Hot Topics on Twitter if anyone still uses that. Um, we're on Facebook too. I think we can maybe squeeze in just one more podcast between now and Christmas. So I'll see you then. Bye bye. <laughs>